Welcome to He Sang, She Sang from Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian. And I'm Julian Fleischer. Today, we are talking about Dvorak's Rusalka. And joining us in the studio is WQXR's legendary overnight host, Nimet Habashi, who's a great opera lover. In fact, she hosted intermission features for 20 years as part of the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts. Nimet, we are so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Julian. Hi, Marin. Hi. So, Rosalka, this opera is a national treasure in the Czech Republic, and for good reason. It's written in the Czech language, and it's based in the Czech tradition of using folklore and fairy tales as the basis of the story. So, maybe the most recognizable is the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Little Mermaid. And in the Disney version, Things end pretty well for The Little Mermaid. Not quite so well in the story of Rosalka, but we can get into that a little bit later. So that's one of the fairy tales that the opera is based on. Nimet, how about the other? Well, you can take the story all the way back to the Odyssey of Homer, because after all, Odysseus, if you recall, has to get himself lashed to the mast of his ship so that he doesn't fall prey to the attraction of the sirens. And you can take the story all the way through. I mean, as late as 1939, Giraudoux wrote a play about this whole business of the supernatural versus reality, which seems to be a theme that runs through Meyerbeer's opera, Dinora. Of course, the whole Wagner ring, one does think of the Rhine maidens and the nymphs. I mean, they're not all that different from each other. Right, with the, with the water sprites in Rosalka. The water sprites, yeah. to say nothing of Keats and Yeats, who both addressed the subject. Even Harry Potter, well, I don't remember the creatures well enough, but there's an awful lot of supernatural creation in that. So it's a theme that goes on, us versus these supernatural creatures, or more to the point, men versus the supernatural creatures that attract out of fear. I guess that's a subject that might come up. Also love and sex. Boy gets mermaid, boy loses mermaid. You know, it's a classic Hollywood tale. It functions beautifully in the uh, in the the world of the Hollywood tropes. It does, and boy chases mermaid right to his death, <laughs> right. um, as happens in this opera. So, just to give a really brief synopsis of what happens here, Rosalka is a mermaid or a water nymph. She lives in this supernatural sort of fairy tale esque world, which is represented spectacularly in the music. She falls in love with a prince. She goes to Yejibaba, a witch, and asks her to turn her into a human, which she does. But just like in The Little Mermaid, Rusalka has to give up her voice. Interesting. (laughs) Great subject for an opera. (laughs) Yes, it is. And it it makes for a really interesting second act where you have the the title character who's mute. Anyway, as I said, uh, things don't really end so well. She goes on land. She meets the prince. The prince has this other foreign princess a little bit of a domineering lady and a little bit conniving, the polar opposite to the very innocent and sort of pure Rosalka. The prince betrays his mermaid love. Rosalka goes back to her water forest world, distraught, and when the prince comes chasing after her, basically part of this deal that she made with the devil, or in this case, Yejibaba, the witch, is that in kissing the prince at the end of the opera, he has to die. So... Rosalka gets caught between two worlds. She's rejected from her own supernatural world because she renounced it. Um, she's also rejected from the human world. So she ends up in this kind of neverland of not belonging anywhere. And the prince ends up dead. 
Now, is that part of the original fairy tale, or is that the opera's take on her fate? Because it's really dark. I mean, it's worse than anything. I mean, she doesn't even get the luxury of, of a nice death and a, and a trip to heaven. She basically has to go back to the bottom of the lake and live there as a cursed soul for all eternity. It just seems really harsh. Well, unlike most nymph stories, Rusalka is this vulnerable creature, but at the same time, she has the power to kill. And, of course, there's the Faustian pact that she has made in Act One, where she has indeed given her soul away. Even more interesting, Nimet, is that she has the power to kill, but she doesn't want to. You know, in, in Act 3, Yajibaba comes with a knife and says, you can save yourself, Rizalka, if you kill the prince with this knife. And Rizalka says, no, she I can't. refuse to do it. But ultimately, in loving the prince and in his love for her and his own desire for redemption at the end, he chooses that fate. He says, I know that I'll die if you kiss me because you just told me so, but please do it because it's the only thing that will give me any peace. So she does have that power to kill, and it's a power that destroys her. She doesn't want it at all, and yet she can't escape it. It has all the elements of something horribly real that I think perhaps human beings do face in different formats, but there are the choices that we are each given at various times in our lives. And... Uh, Hers mirrors some of the difficulties human beings do have, it I does. think. Yeah, the powerful impact that we have on other people, whether we want to or even know it or not. I guess there's something also to be said for the notion of giving too much away. Her her willingness to give up her, her actual, her identity, her sea nymphness, to get a pair of legs, you know, in order to pursue love, I think on, on almost any talk show of our current era, you hear people warning young people not to give too much away in the pursuit of romance. It's never a good idea. And her father, the water gnome, he watches on and he doesn't really think it's going to go that well for her. I think that he himself is a bit distraught about her decision to go off into the human world. In this opera, there's a dichotomy between the supernatural world and the human world. And for all of the water creatures, this human world is kind of inherently sort of evil in its way. He knows that harm is going to come to her, but she so badly wants to go that he says, ask the witch. He lets her make that choice as hard as it is for him. And that's another very human aspect of this somewhat supernatural tale is what a parent is prepared to do for his or her child. Which brings out Brunhilde in the Valkyrie, who winds up on a pyre of fire, protected by her father, a god, of course. But still, it's the father-daughter relationship. It's the father letting go of the child whom he has protected and nurtured and the uncertainty of all our lives. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Dvorak for a moment and where he was in his life when he wrote this opera. In previous episodes of this show, in many previous episodes, in fact, we've spoken about operas that were written by composers who were pretty young, in their late 20s or their early 30s, and several of whom died not long after that. Dvorak 
also died not long after writing this opera, but in fact, he was 60 years old, so a somewhat more mature and seasoned musician who, in his life, was really known for his orchestral and symphonic music, and not really at all for his operas. But in fact, he wrote 10 of them, and Rizalka was the ninth of them, and by far, it's the most loved and the most popular of all of them. I think it's performed more often than all of his other operas combined. So this is really his operatic legacy. And it was what he wanted to be writing more than anything in the last five years of his life. He really wanted to focus his attention on opera. He felt that that was the way to get to the hearts and the minds of the Czech people at that time. And even before that, he became fixated, actually, on Slavic folklore. I mean, he had come in contact with the works of Karel Jaromir Erben, who had apparently collected some 500 songs from the whole area. And he himself, Dvorak, was absolutely madly in love with his bohemian origins, the woods, the walks that he famously took, which inspired him so much. But because of Erben's work, he came up with things like the Water Goblin and the Noon Witch and the Wood Dove, all of those pieces that we know, that we hear, their little tone poems. So in a way, he was building up to writing Rusalka. And I think he does incredibly well with it. it. It seems to mirror everything he was about. And he had been terribly homesick while he was living those two, three years in America. Right before writing Before Rusalka. writing Rusalka, he composed it after he returned to his beloved Bohemia. And by which time, everybody was expecting him practically to do something of that ilk. I'm reminded every time you say the name of the opera that when Marin, you first called me about this. I thought you had said Veselka. And I live in the East Village, and I thought it was an opera about pierogi. <laughs> Which sounds delicious. Oh, my God. Let's write the great pierogi opera. You heard it here first. Yeah. Um, you know, fun. also... <laughs> I'm just trying to keep it light, ladies. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing Nimet because that's it. such it's a gorgeous... I mean, she just, you know, her, her exegesis is so complete. Um, and I just felt it it needed a pierogi joke. (laughs) (laughs) I think most situations call for a pierogi joke. It's true. Um, And in fact, the Czech Republic could probably have used a pierogi joke or two at the time. You know, the the Austro-Hungarian Empire was in power. And it's, you know, the the Czech people were really looking for something to latch onto. They've had a tough time. They have, yes. Their history has really been marred by some dark episodes. It's no surprise that if you ever go to Prague to learn that that's, you know, where Kafka was writing, you know, his material, because it's quite spooky there. Beautiful. I mean, ravishingly beautiful town, but also lots of dark corridors and strange maze-like streets and back alleys that you can get quite lost in. Yep. You know, I had exactly the same impression. I found it very dark. And I remember thinking, you know, the music really suits. Yeah. Uh, because you look at the Charles River and you look at the castle and it broods and it sort of looks down on everything. And I thought, ooh, very spooky, very, uh, you know, the noon witch and all of these things came rattling through my head. I thought, yeah, it fits. Yes, but this, I'm sorry. Back to no. That's I mean, so good. Yeah. This is it's all relevant. I mean, this is this is the world that we're talking about. This right. is the world that Dvorak was writing in, and in some ways writing about and writing for. And this opera was composed for the National Theater in Prague, which had the mission at the time to develop the Czech national consciousness and patriotism during a time when the country was under the Austro-Hungarian rule. So they were really specifically looking to speak 
to the people, to the Czech people, in a way that made them feel like they had an important national identity. And that's one of the reasons that this opera, along with The Bartered Bride by Smetana, are really the two Czech operas that are at the heart of the genre for that nation. Mm-hmm. So having mentioned the National Theater in Prague, we should also mention that the premiere of the opera took place on March 31st in 1901, and it was it, it was an unexpected triumph at the turn of the century, kind of given its subject matter. Verismo opera had sort of been the, the flavor of the day, Verismo opera being about real-life people doing real-life things, and this is very much not a Verismo opera. This could um, be mistaken for Wagner, as you said, Nimet. I mean, these these people are, you know, this is sort of a battle of, you know, between the gods and the people. It is. It is, absolutely. I mean, Wagner's ring is obviously where all of this would be. There would be an affinity. But, but the two were contemporaries. They knew about each other's music, which is kind of interesting. I mean, Dvořák was a very well-traveled man. As someone pointed out, he traveled between St. Petersburg and Omaha, Nebraska. Wow. <laughs> so the man got around. Wow. But this was also a time where there was a certain proliferation of everybody's music. I mean, people were hearing each other's music more than had been the case before. Not for the first time, but it was truly developing in the late 19th century, I think. So by the 20th, you had the involvement of America, which Dvořák actually contributes to. But that's that's a whole other subject. That's yeah. Well, talking about his, his versatility and all of the various influences... It's actually all in the music of Rosalco because there are so many different characters and colors to the music in this one opera. The way that he paints the world of the water nymphs. They have a kind of, of bubbly and atmospheric music, and the music of Rizalka and the Water Gnome, a little bit different. <laughs> then you go into the human world, and it's characterized completely differently as well. So there are just all of these different colors and approaches to the music for the different situations and characters. Would you go so far as to call them leitmotifs? Oh, yes. I think so. You certainly know when Rusalka is about to appear again, you get the strains of the beginnings of the song to the womb. Right. And the instrumentation, the harp, has a very important and rather crucial role. It seems to carry the, the lightness of spirit, I think, more yeah. than any other instrument, and he makes ample use of it. Yeah, and magic. It, it sort of captures a sense of magic, the harp. And somehow. water. It's so, and water. It's very... Ripplingness. Yeah, ripply. Yeah, and, exactly. 
Nimet, you just mentioned the song to the moon, which yes. is um, one of the only real arias in this opera. It's, it's very through composed, which is to say that rather than being divided into recitative and arias, rather than having established discrete numbers, it's sung through in a way that's a little bit more fluid. But the song to the moon in spite of that, is an aria that's come to really stand on its own. It gets performed separately from the, from the opera itself in concert and things. It's really gorgeous. And it's the aria that Rosalka sings in the first act. And she is asking the moon to find the prince and tell him that she loves him. And so basically it's a, it's a summoning, it's a beckoning of her love. It just is extraordinarily atmospheric and lovely. And there, there are times when this aria is just exactly what I want and need to hear. I don't know if you ever have that experience when you just, your soul is craving just something really specific. It might be music. It might be words that you've read in a book or a poem or whatever. But there's just something that you long for. And it's very, very specific. And sometimes... Rosalka's song to the moon is exactly that thing for me. It's very special. It's undeniably the centerpiece of this opera. When you talk to folks about it who know it, Song to the Moon is the thing that they always reference right away. So my question would be, what would Rusalka be like without this number? Would it have its place in history? In the Czech Republic, yes. Mm. <laughs> Elsewhere, I'm not so sure. It's only about six, seven minutes long, but it, it's yeah. the defining moment of the opera. It's really the only famous song. I think you're right. It is It is the only famous song. There is some other truly luscious, beautiful, beautiful music. Yeah. You know, I think that some of the themes that are at the heart of the opera, they would still be resonant even without this one particular aria. You know, the idea of what people are willing to do for love, the idea of redemption, of longing and yearning, all of that is just so fundamentally human and central to the human experience that I wonder if it wouldn't have found a place even without this one very memorable song. Mm. I wanted to get some first-hand insight into what makes Dvorak's Rosalka so special. So I went up to the Metropolitan Opera to speak with soprano Christina Opelais, who is singing the title role. The, the very important to say that Rusalka is really one of my very favorite roles. I like Rusalka because of these colorful situations, you know, with, with these emotions, uh, with this, uh, generally with this story, how much <clears throat> she's, she's changing. And also music. In music, we have so many uh, different colors. From one side is very romantic, melody is beautiful, especially in the first act. And then it's growing up and changing to the more aggressive mm -hmm. points. And these aggressive points, this dramatic music is coming, and also not so beautiful anymore, is coming when she starts to have this uh, feeling, when she understood that people are very 
cruel to her, you know. Yeah. When she got this first knife in the back from Prince, the man whom she, she loved so much, and she was ready to, to change and, uh, you know, she changed everything. She left her normal, usual world and life for this man. Of course, this is very strong feelings she, she has. So it's very it's very interesting role musically, vocally, and um, as a character, I I really put on me a lot of dresses, let's say, and uh, <laughs> it makes the role very interesting for me, for my soul. Yeah, you talked about the fact that she gives up her whole world to be yeah. with this prince, and she does. She makes so many huge sacrifices for love, and. I'm wondering if, as you play that as a character on stage, if you draw on your own experience, have you made any huge sacrifices or done anything crazy like she has for love? I have very sad stories in my life. So, and I was, I, I was, I was really hurt by people many times. So I, I know what means generally to have knife in your in your bag. And as I said always. Uh, as usual, you have it when you trust completely. And unfortunately, I must say that I got a lot of experiences before I met my husband, <laughs> you know, for example. Yes. So I'm kind of, you know, I have very thick skin now. And I know that I cannot trust 100% because as soon as I trust 100% and I believe 100% there is a, some bad things are coming. So... From one hand is good, from other is sad. Yeah. Because it means that you you definitely you can't trust. And what I have to say to my baby, I have to say to my daughter, only one daughter, that she shouldn't trust hundred percent. She can trust only to her mother, father, you know. And this is sad because I have to prepare her that life is not apple cake. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and this story says the Rusalka story says a lot about that. It does. And at the end, for me, in this story, she stay in between two worlds. She cannot come back for, for the water world because family is not forgiving her. That's right. And she cannot stay with her love. But love was so, love was so strong that she, she gave him a kiss. Yeah. Because, you know, sometimes emotions are stronger than, than, than we can imagine. Yep, Some stronger than our logic or our reason. Emotions, um, passions, and um, and this is exactly what what is killing us. So from one hand, how to live without passions? And from other hand, as soon as you receive some passions, you have a lot of problems. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yes. this is this is very deep story for me. It very is. deep, very psychological, very philosophical. And um, that's why probably I, I like this role a lot, because it's a lot of ways to understand also this opera. Yeah, you're right. It's so, so deep because it does, it touches on everything that's at the core of human relationships. And like you said, trust. You know, Rosalka, when she starts out in the opera, she, there's an innocence to her. Yeah. There's a sort of purity and, and a willingness to trust. Yes. And, you know, you come to the end and she has the experience of being betrayed, of yes, being let down, exactly. which we all do. You know, everyone at do. some point, yeah. we know what that feels like. But romantic love isn't the only kind of love in this opera either. There is the, the love between father and daughter, between yes. the, the water gnome and, and Rosalka. As your father, 
he loves you enough to let you go off into this other world that he believes is dangerous. And he he wants to protect you. He comes and he tries to save you. But there's that intense love that he feels, but also the letting go. And maybe maybe as a mother, you also... Of course. Yeah. And this is the real love, you know. The real love is not to keep somebody next to you, but let it go. Just with the hoping that this person will be happy. And of course, this is only we want for our child. How old is your daughter? She's five. She's five. So you maybe haven't had to do so much of the the letting go quite yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 not yet. Actually, and she's also not a big fan of opera, let's say. I always ask her, do you want to go with me? She's always uh, keeping saying, no, 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 no. (laughs) But she sings very well. She's singing well. And my mother told me that she's singing a lot when I'm not at home. So which means that, as I remember my mother, when my mother sang, I, I didn't want to hear because my mother also wanted to be an opera singer. So, and I remember for me, it was very funny to hear this, this voice, you know, um, and I, I, I didn't want. And I think I have the same now with Adriana. Her name is Adriana Anna. But when I'm not there, and I, I actually heard sometimes how she's singing, very funny. She got one thing. She, she understood, because from the beginning, when she was three, she sang just with a very, of course, very baby voice, mm-hmm. you know. But now what she's doing, she's doing like... <laughs> something like that and it's so funny because i'm saying why you're traveling so much your 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 voice you know <laughs> just keep it you know on the on the breath and she's like oh and doing special this this tremble you know it's so funny i mean this is how probably kids are hearing their voices and this is sad that that's probably why i didn't want i never third about this profession in my life so and it was a mother who told me you must and you have to and I was so unhappy because for me it was like oh no do I really need to sing this way that's wrong but this is how they hear the the, the sound you know it's funny she's trying to sound like mommy she thinks it's so funny but that's it's logical I mean of course she, yeah she, she already she understands so you weren't immediately sold on the idea of being an opera singer, but obviously you came around to it. When was it that you fell in love with singing and it became something that means so much to you? Oh, yeah, it was an um, interesting story, actually, because from the first time when my mother told me I must try and uh, I must go to to take a private lessons, I was only in about 17 and for me, it was a tragedy because I was a huge fan of Madonna, Michael Jackson, uh, Tina Turner, you know. I mean, come on, opera. The greats, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mama, you know, it was a shock. <laughs> and I sang, and but she heard that I have a kind of possibilities. But I think there was the ego which she couldn't, you know, she couldn't prove herself as an opera singer. So there was a lot of points why. And she wanted me to do that. But I guess her intuition was right. But, of course, it was very far away from my plans because I wanted to be an actress and then I had a huge plans to go to the Hollywood. And then one day I thought, let me try because whatever. I mean, my mother say, says you have to and I have huge respect to her, so I couldn't say no. And I said, okay, okay, I will try. So I, I was traveling from my small city to Riga, to the main city of Latvia, uh, for this private uh, lesson just once per week. And I really felt unhappy because I didn't understand what to do with this voice and how to breathe. And and um, I lost 
I really, I, I felt very bad. And then I left, I left this idea and I said, Mom, I can't, you know, leave me alone. I want to sing rock pop and that's it. And then after, only after two years, well, my mother was, you know, she had, she had some problems with the health and I just wanted to make her happier. And I came back for this, her dream. Everything is fine. She's, she's fine. But, you know, I did it for her second time. I just thought I need to try again. Because it was also the the time when I when I got older, and then I thought, where is Hollywood, and where where I am? You know, I'm in Riga. <laughs> so the, yes. The, the, and I came back to to the same um, the voice teacher, and then she gave me the I remember one day the recording of Maria Callas, which you know you understand. I do understand. So. From that day, I decided, and it was video, and it was Tosca, <laughs> second act from Covent Garden. So I understood this is the art, yes. and this is the personality, and this is something I really want to do. And since that day, I really start to work hard. And um, that's how I arrived, <laughs> somehow here. <laughs> well, you know, I, I asked you earlier if you've made any big sacrifices for love, and you have. You made that sacrifice in a way for the love of your mother and for respect yes, for your mother. True. You made a huge life decision in order to give her something to hold on to at a time that was difficult for her. That's Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. Uh, All thanks to remind, remind me about that, actually. You are very right. And fortunately, you came to love this profession. And, you know, obviously yes. it's worked out very well. But at the time you made that choice, that was a risk. So now when she's not she's not in the wish to go with me and help me with Adriana, I'm telling her always, <laughs> right. Mom, you want it. You want it. You must help me. So <laughs> yes. I always remember her. You want it, you know. She owes you lots of babysitting. That's for yeah, sure. Yes, she's here now. Of course, she's with me and she's helping. That's great. So speaking about singing, usually we talk about the challenges of singing operatic music and, you know, all of the technique involved, all of the preparation. But actually with Rizalka, I'm more interested in the challenge of not singing because you spend a lengthy period of time right in the middle of this opera as a mute character. You don't sing a word. Is that hard? You know, very interesting question because... Actually, this is my favorite act, and this is my favorite part of this opera. And it's also, it's kind of super unusual thing. That's why I like this role, because in the second act, you can check, and you can see from the singer, is that only singer on stage or artist? Because there is a, no way to sing, so you have to play all your emotions. So everything has to speak, even your back, when you turn. You have to be so intensive in the role that your, even your back has to speak to the audience. So I need a very strong bass. You know, I, I need to suffer. I need to feel this pain in my heart, in my soul, that I can share, that it's so visible yes. for the audience, that I, I can share my pain. So I have to be in a real pain. Of course, vocally is hard because you have no chance to warm up your voice. But I, I love, I'm a, you know, I'm not afraid. It's challenging, but I, I, I love this act. And this is my favorite, favorite act. That's on, on fascinating. This, this, this Rusalka opera. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And, um, you know, as I wanted to be an actress, <laughs> this is only the moment when I really, <laughs> when I really um, 
use the situation to be an actress. So not not singing, just acting. Maybe mm. even deeper than Hollywood, Rosalka. Maybe even deeper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm at the Metropolitan Opera speaking with Christina Opelice about her role as Rosalka. And Christina, I'm wondering if this is also kind of a, a cautionary tale, a warning about trying to be something other than what you really are. Because Rosalka has to change who she is in order to be with the prince, and it all becomes so heartbreaking for everybody. For you, is the message there, or one of the many messages in the opera, we can't change who we are. You know, we can only be what we were born to be. That's true, because you, we cannot change. I mean, we can try, but at the end, we have what we have, <laughs> you know. And uh, she really tried to change herself, but also the, you know, the people around. It's so, for her, it's so cold. They're so tough to her, mm -hmm. so cruel. I think this is the biggest also a shock for Rosalka to understand how how hard is humans world. And uh, again, coming back for our conversation, uh, that is very deep story, very philosophical and psychological. So truthful story. Yeah. What's funny about fairy tales is, in theory, they're written for children, but they tend to tell the truth about life in a lot of ways. They tend to have a really dark side yeah. to them. And a lot of those, the original tales, don't have happy endings. The Disney movies, they get happy endings. Yeah. But Hans Christian Andersen, but just for kids, <laughs> right. You know, the real stories, the real fairy tales, they have all of the of the darkness and yeah. the, the profound themes of, of human life, yes. which, you know, you have... In every moment of Rosalka. Yeah, every moment. That's true. Yeah. So in this opera, we see Rosalka make a sort of debut as a human being, right? Yeah. Um, and you, as a singer, have also had a kind of famous history with debuts, especially at the Metropolitan Opera. In 2014, you made history here by making two role debuts in 18 hours. You sang an evening performance of Madame Butterfly. And then you stepped in the next day for a matinee of La Boheme, uh, which was also, by the way, broadcast in movie theaters oh my around the world. Right? Oh, my gosh. Exactly. What was that experience like for you? You know, actually, it's very why, I, why I'm smiling. Because at that time, it was only my second time at the Metropolitan. And I really didn't know what means matinee. And I didn't know what means HD. I mean, I heard about it, but I didn't understand the real meaning. That's why when Peter Gale called me, I, I was asleep still. It was very, very early. I didn't get, because I didn't really understand what means matinee. But I wasn't about to say no, and I said no. I just called back. Because when I understood that it's such a crazy, it's such a risky all my body and brain said to me, do that. <laughs> Isn't it cool? I mean, do that. Try that. But I think still that I didn't understand for real what it meant because only now I understood. If I would be in the trouble, it could kind of close my my career, yeah. you know, somehow, in somehow. Because every mistake, it's like world mistake. Yeah. And you, you know, it is. 
And when I saw the cameras, when they start to move, when I start to see see me, Kiyama no Mimi, only at that moment I said to myself, oh my gosh, you know, this is... (laughs) There was something really crazy. But I think it was uh, written in in my destiny destiny. because I did it. And uh, at the end of the day, it was great. I'm so thankful to the destiny that I had this experience. But I'm not sure I would ever repeat it because (laughs) now my brain and, you know, all... I mean, it's a huge challenge. Now I I would understand it's it's impossible to do that. So it it was crazy. But amazing, amazing experience. I'm sure... And it did go Easy. very well. Uh, <laughs> it does. It, it does sort of seem like you have destiny kind of guiding some of the big moments. Oh, it's of just your a life. problem of my character. When some somebody says to me, you know, you cannot do something, or you are bad, <laughs> or you know, when I I think like it's crazy, it's impossible. Another Christina says to me, what? Nothing is impossible. Do that. <laughs> so, I'm always in conflict uh, with my brain and uh, Christina inside me, who always make a risk. So, <laughs> yes. And as big a risk, as much much more sure I am inside. Christina inside me always says to me, "Do that. Do that. You have to make risk, and then you can drink champagne. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not making risk, you are not drinking champagne." <laughs> Just to give a little bit more context about how Dvorak did write this opera, mm-hmm. he wrote it over the course of seven months, which is... Pretty quick. Pretty quick. quick. Not as quick as some of, for instance, Rossini's operas that were slapped together in, uh-huh. in three weeks, four weeks, whatever. But wow. still, seven months is a relatively brief period of time in which to compose a three-and-a-half-hour opera. Well, I guess that's with intermissions, but still a very long, a very long. Word. Intermissions take a very long time to compose. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and he worked with a librettist who was a young poet and playwright named Jaroslav Kvapil. He... Can I get that with sour cream and applesauce? <laughs> <Yeah. sauce? laughs> yes, yeah, definitely coming right up. Okay. Um, so Kvapil had brought the libretto to a few other composers who had actually turned it down. But for Dvorak, he saw it and he said, that's the one. I want to write that opera. The idea captured his imagination. Right away. Right away. And he spent the next seven months focused on it. He went to a summer home that he had in in Bohemia. I won't try to pronounce the name (laughs) of this town, but that home has since been called the Villa Rusalka. Oh, that's nice. Right. And there's a there's a sort of swamp in the, in the woods surrounding this villa that is called the Rizalka Lake and that's where and she's he, down there. And she's still. she's down there weeping. <laughs> um, but it, it apparently gave him some of the inspiration for writing the music. I'm you know I'm curious about the whole notion of these walks that he took. It wasn't long ago that I learned that Beethoven took long walks. Brahms took long walks, Picasso took long walks, and they almost all carried with them a a pen and and some paper. I mean back in the day I guess it was parchment, but I'm I'm really fascinated by this notion that these great great, you know, timeless artists in for them the walk was part of their their job. Going to the office for a great composer meant walking the hillsides of their various towns. Does this mean anything to you, this notion? I have a sense of the European importance of the stroll or the pre-prandial walk. The ability to derive from the atmosphere is something that I don't think is so much 
an American thing. I'm not sure it ever was. There's a far more hurried sense of life. European existence is based on a sort of absorption of what is around one. Right. And a lot of it is derived from the sheer simple pleasure of taking in the scenery. And, of course, it is very beautiful wherever you are. But something about the Europeans' emphasis on the delights of walking and strolling. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. There's something about how it shakes out inspiration, something yeah. about walking. Well, it, cha- it changes the pace. Mm-hmm. And also there is there's an element of both quiet and space, yeah. space to think and to imagine and dream and be inspired by something. I think we know very well in New York, and I'm sure that people in other cities across the world know this, is that you can feel like there's hardly any space. And that's both in a very literal sense, but also in a you know more spiritual or psychic sense. There's just so much noise and crowd. And you know how often do we really feel that we have the luxury of spending a couple of hours strolling mm-hmm. and allowing ourselves to just quietly think about things? Um, and maybe that's more important than we realize to the creative process, not necessarily the walk, although I think there is actually something physically about movement, getting things flowing. I think I there's something agree. real there's in a, that. a cadence to walking. Mm-hmm. But, a a yeah. window in your psyche opens up the minute you start a stroll. Yeah. And I think that, that the great composers knew, knew this. It wasn't an accident. They just, in order to get the job done, would start walking. Shall we take a walk after we record this podcast? <laughs> well, let's find some walking style music in the opera. There must be something that we could, some passage in there. Yeah, let's let's talk some more about the music. I don't know that there's anything especially walky, but the music follows, not surprisingly, but it does follow the, the journey of the story. So in Act 1, you have Rizalka's really barely suppressed passion. That song to the moon is a plea to help her connect with her love. It's a classic I want song. It is. I want want that prince. In act two, you hear her desperation and the rejection and this different human world in the music. And then in act three, you have this devastating resignation. You hear her resolve her own life and she knows her own fate. Yes. And I was saying the music is different for different characters, but for Rosalka, it's actually different even in the different acts for her. Her lament at the beginning of the third act where she's talking about being deprived of her youth, it's a world away from the song to the moon. What a journey, not a happy one, but what an incredible musical journey, exceptionally evocative of exactly what's happening in the drama. It's time for our YouTube picks, where we recommend performances that we especially love to help you get even more familiar with Rizalka. Nimet, what's a performance that you especially love? 
I think Frederica von Stade's rendering of the Song of the Moon has a kind of elemental giving everything you've got to this particular music. And when Flicker goes to that high section at the end of the recitative, if you will, there's a quality of transcending reality that I think she manages absolutely beautifully. Aside from the sheer quality of the voice, it's just a giving of one's entire soul. I find it totally inspiring. And that's a recording I would go back to quite often. I'd say it's almost as good as her voice sapete, her cherubino, which is her signature role. Well, I think the song to the moon is one of her great moments. Julian, what have you got? Well, I'm torn. Um, okay, you well, know, you, I, can have, you can have two. Well, okay. the world is your oyster, my Obviously, friend. Obviously, the the version of this story that everybody in America knows is the Little Mermaid, the classic. Disney animated feature from the 90s, not just any Disney animated feature, but the one that got them back on the animated horse. You know, the, there had been a long uh, dry spell of decades for Disney animated features. And then The Little Mermaid restored them overnight to to their, their, their former greatness. And obviously part of your world is the great aria that, that uh, Ariel sings at the beginning of the movie. But I'd like to point people to my three favorite songs from that movie. Um, Ursula the Sea Witch, who makes the, bar- the Faustian bargain with her, sings Poor Unfortunate Souls, which is her incredible and hilarious, wicked aria to her own greatness. Um, there's a, a scene with a French chef when uh, Sebastian the Crab ends up uh, mistakenly in the kitchen and almost becomes dinner called Les Poissons, which has some of my favorite rhymes in all of Disney, my favorite, which is... Les poissons, les poissons, hee hee hee, ha ha ha. That's a great rhyme, and of course, "Under the Sea," which won the Oscar for best song, um, is a just a, a, a gigantic, uh, fishy ensemble, uh, up tempo, real Broadway song about the, the the benefits of living under the water. Highly recommend all three of those. You can see them, but also, if I may, when I was listening to various versions, I was taken recently with Leontine Price's version. And that's because last week was her 90th birthday. And I went down a long, and I'm still sort of in a long Leontine Price wormhole on YouTube. She's extraordinary, obviously. And her rendition of this, I think, has many of the qualities that you were looking for as well. Of Song to the Moon specifically? Yes. But there is a video I want to point your listeners to. There's an interview with Leontine Price from, I think, the late 90s on a British show. All seven parts of it are available on YouTube. And she talks about her career from her childhood right up through that point in her life. And it's riveting. She is an extraordinary talker as well as a singer. And... I would I would recommend this to your I hope we'll put it on the show page. It's really worth watching. We will. That sounds great. So you can check out all of these videos on the He Sang She Sang show page and I challenge you to say He Sang She Sang show page through <laughs> ten times faster. Sang show page at WQXR.org. And while you're there, we would love it if you would leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the show, any questions that you might have as a result of some of what we talked about, anything. And if you like it, please tell a friend about it and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or whatever you use to get a podcast downloaded. Our guest today was WQXR's wonderful overnight host, Nimet Habashi. Thank you so much for joining us, Nimet. Oh, thank you for Yay, having Nimet. me. <laughs> thank you, Joe. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York WQXR. I am Julian Fleischer. And I am Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening.